You're listening to Drinking Socially, the official Untapped podcast, your weekly look into what's happening in the Untapped community and the world of beer. I'm Kyle. And I'm Tim. Drinking Socially is released every Wednesday morning and can be found at podcast.untapped.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, Kyle. I'm back. Welcome back. Thank you. Good to, good to be back. It must have been pretty amazing. It was a good trip. Um, I guess if you haven't listened to the last four episodes where... Uh, sequentially we would uh, get weirder and weirder trying to describe that i was gone and we were recording these in advance um it was a marathon more of a sprint i guess to get all of those recorded before i went on vacation to japan um but i had a great time and i'm, I'm glad to be back excellent glad to be working really <laughs> honestly something to do yeah and uh, in case you didn't catch that, we will be doing our weekly recordings now that Kyle is back, yeah. and we will be keeping things a bit more fresh. Uh, so, obviously, beer, another country. What was your best experience? <laughs> so, I remember uh, I was listening back to episode nine, the one we just put out, uh, thinking about what the American beer offerings were going to be when I got there. And I think one of the more standout things that I found was in Sapporo, uh, Hokkaido. Uh, there was a place called the Beer Inn, which I believe has been there for about 30 years, but it's uh, a gentleman from the United States who is bringing over on a pretty consistent basis a whole bunch of cans and bottles from North America, namely uh, the, the great state of Oregon, known for their multitude of beers. There were a lot of rogue beers on tap, um, I had a sour and and maybe a session IPA, a couple things, um, but it was it was in a basement in, <laughs> in another building because uh, it, it, small space. It, it was really cool. It was a neat place, kind of um, an oasis, like a beer oasis, okay. if you would. Yeah. It almost reminded me too much of home, though. <laughs> like I, I I I wanted to have you know a, a uniquely uh, a unique experience in another country, and that provided it but in such a way that reminded me of home in ways that i i was like no I, i'm good like i had a couple of tasters i'm yeah. like let's let's go let's go find something a little more local yeah so we did the uh we went to the sapporo museum That's that cool. was there uh in sapporo we also uh, hit up a couple of smaller uh nano breweries um Places that were doing both food and beer. Uh, not a whole lot of like tasting room only. Um, but again, like it, the ability to just walk around uh, that city, take a couple of trains, a couple of subway cars to these different breweries, these different tap rooms and, and bars and stuff was really cool. Um, it was unlike Unlike California in that way. I know that there is kind of a, a trail along the Metrolink here in, in Southern California where you can get off and go to like Nobleo Works mm -hmm. and you can get off and go to uh, Chapman, which is another one over in, in downtown Orange that I like. Um, but it's not like it's not the, the stops are so close together that you're likely to find something at, at every every stop along the way. Um, uh, one of the other standouts too was beer vending machines. Oh, so they've got vending machines for, for just about everything, right? Pretty much, pretty much everything. There were new instant noodles, uh, coffee, hot coffee, cold coffee. I, I saw ones that dispense live crabs once. They're okay, like see, they're no. partially frozen, like flash frozen live crabs. I've never no. There I was did. a video of it. I saw. Oh, somewhere. I did not see that. See, I didn't come across anything 
super out of the ordinary yeah i i would say beer was probably the the most out of the ordinary um there was even a a vending machine on the island that i went to so i went to the the bonin islands or okasaura which is um about a thousand kilometers south of tokyo took took 24 hours to get there by boat uh, but <laughs> if you try and zoom in on Google Maps, you, like, can't, you, see you can't see it. The pin is bigger than the island oh, yeah. itself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, about 2,000, 3,000 people on the island. But they had some craft, quote unquote, craft beer. Uh, they were craft styles brewed by the bigger uh, Suntory and uh, Sapporo and uh, Tokyo. They called it Tokyo craft beer. But they had these craft styles. They're IPAs. Uh, a JPL, a Japanese uh, pale lager, just interesting styles that are kind of not what you expect when when you're thinking about oh, what are the huge you know Orion is one of the big beers in Japan and uh, Asahi Dry and Super Dry things like that. Um, that was probably the most surprising part of of being on the island, especially, and of all all of the different options um, in those vending machines in in japan it was very cool i really enjoyed myself it was three weeks yeah that i was out that's so that, a long time <laughs> it was really you can i i said in one of my check-in comments um on untapped that i tried pretty much every craft can that i could that i could find in those vending machines and across went to 7-eleven which is spectacular in japan <laughs> And, you know, a couple other uh, supermarket type places. And I I tried pretty much everything. It seemed like it. You, I was watching your check-ins and um, there were some pretty cool looking things. Although I think you definitely tested out the international character recognition. I did. A lot. Trying to find the English translation or the, um, the phonetic pronunciation in Roman characters is pretty pretty difficult yeah. um but once i mean we we have our new search system um for searching for beers now and just typing in the first couple characters of it helped out immensely oh good um, so that i think one of the weirdest beers i had was the tomato beer whoa did okay. you see, did you see the tomato I beer i may have missed that one it was kind of like mixing tomato juice and a, a light lager um, Sounds kind of like the michelada that you would do here. Just not like a michelada, though. I I love micheladas, okay. but you get more like lime and it's uh, spice. Yeah, and, like so this was just straight up tomato juice. This is like V eight and and a light lager. Oh wow, okay, yeah, yeah it was not great, not great. But again, like that isn't a style that you see here at all. Yeah, um, and I was, I it was a good time. I, I had a a lot of fun. That's. It sounds like it, and the check-ins prove a good portion of that. But it is good to have you back, and good to get back into the flow of the Thank show. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I guess we should uh, keep moving on, though. Yeah. Let's see. What are we? What are we drinking today? Well, today we are not just cracking one beer. I thought it would be fun to do something a little different to welcome you back. So today we are actually going to be doing a beer and food pairing. So we're actually going to be trying four different beers. Okay. Um, we will name those as we go through. But this is actually in relation to an article that I read um, on fatherly.com, which um, Ryan, um, one of our designers back in North Carolina, turned me on to that site. Um, it's like a a, fa- like a parenting slash technology blog. Um, okay. Very cool place um, for those dads out there. Um, but this article is entitled, The Best Beers to Complement the Kid Leftovers You Always Eat. Now, as a parent, admittedly, I eat 
kid leftovers, mm-hmm. leftover mac and cheese. Um, if it's the end of the day, I'll, I'm picking up the kiddo from school. I'm like, oh, what's left in your lunch? Oh, there's some carrots. I'll finish those off. Mm-hmm. Apple I, slices. Exactly. Yeah, okay. so there's always something lying around like, oh, there's a half a baggie of goldfish left. Okay. I know what I'm going to have for the <laughs> afternoon snack. <laughs> Um, but basically, uh, the article goes on to say, as a parent, your ability to eat normal food is compromised because obviously kids can be a bit picky and there are certain kids' snacks that tend to take over your pantry. Um, and you just, what do you do with those? I mean, just because you're eating scraps doesn't mean that you can't have a good beer to go with them. Yeah, see, now I'm I'm more used to like t- taking the beer pairing snobbery to the highest possible mm. level, pairing it with aged cheeses and uh which beer and beer and cheese pairing isn't really a a thing you see often, but there are these cheese companies that will label like, "Oh, you should with this chev, you should have uh, a light lager or you should have um a, a really robust porter." with this this really silky cheese to try and balance the flavors is is that the the stance they take here in this article or, or what not exactly not super highbrow you're saying no okay all we're, right we're gonna it's we're gonna get interesting here so uh the the people over at fatherly brought in ian clark who's the chef and founder of a uh, brew hand-built ales and eats in boulder uh, who he is also an award-winning brewer at the Great American Beer Festival. So it's safe to say that he knows a bit about food and beer. Um, so they brought him in to do some interesting pairings with beer and leftovers. And being that I have a kiddo at home and I happen to have pantries full of snacks, I thought it'd be interesting to do this on the show. Yeah, I'm excited. This <laughs> it's gonna be it's gonna this be good. Is, this is cool. This is not. I mean. You could, these are snacks that you would probably eat on like Super Bowl Sunday or, you know, you, you have them around the house again, like you have kids or you, you just have snacks lying around. Oh, that's a, that's a good sound. That's, I wonder what that is. What, right. do, you, what do you have here So first? the first one up here that I pulled, so th- this article has quite a few pairings, so you should definitely check it out. The link will be in the show notes. I pulled a few to start with. Uh, the first one up here we have is string cheese paired with Lagunitas pills. All right, so I would say if you're trying to get really authentic, this is nice and cold. Yes. If you want to get really authentic with the leftover feel, warm, yeah. it has to be warm in a lunchbox. It, it has to be oh, that's... Kind of like like almost gelatinous. But okay, I, I appreciate you're 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 cranking this up a, a notch uh, to to make it a little more palatable with the cold beer. I appreciate <laughs> so that. Before we get into it, the the why here is basically the peel away string cheese is best paired with something that's light, neutral, and crisp because you want to complement the cheese and not overpower it. Okay. So an important right. question is, I just you just answered the question: Are you a biter <laughs> or a peeler when it comes to string cheese? Well, see, if there's leftover too, mm-hmm. it's probably going to be about half a stick. You can't peel that, right? Mm. It's going to be you're just going to have to take just a big bite at the top. Mm-hmm. All right, let's see. This is going to be the worst segment of the show too, because our mouths will be full of of food. So I we apologize in advance for anyone any who, chewing noises who gets or... triggered by this. Yeah, sorry. Mm. I. I can see, okay. So you got your standard string cheese. It's got its kind of salty mozzarella y thing going on there. Yeah. See, I don't know enough about the the specific flavors of beer and how they pair with the chemical compounds in food. I don't even know about cheese and and the chemical compounds between the two of those. I know the alpha acids in in IPAs and things like that, but how that contributes to pairing with cheese or with 
the, the other items that we'll be talking about here in a second. Um, I, I, I guess I'll just rate it as like a, yeah, this, yeah. this works. I'm, I'm same page here. I, my pairing, like, I'm not gonna, I'm not an expert. Um, I don't have any awards from anywhere, but admittedly, like they go together. I like the, the Pilsner is kind of light and cuts through like the cheese, it, the sweetness from the mozzarella. So what kind of pills is this from Lagunitas? I, I see on the bottle it says Czech pills. Yes, this is their Czech style pills, just called Lagunitas pills. So is it, it, I mean, it's crisp, it's refreshing. It's got, um, a bit more of the like hop bite. I believe this one's more like yeah. the Bavarian style. I, I mean, I just, I want to, I want to like keep eating these together. I, I I'll be honest. I love string cheese. Oh, so it's, it's, perfect. <laughs> I'm glad we started here. <laughs> it's hard for me not to, not to want to have. Honestly, we're going a, from light to dark, but I'm glad this is where okay. we're going. All right. But I kind of like how you're presenting it to me where it's like, I'm not going to show you all the cards all at once. It's like I'm going to I'm going to present to you each course in this tasting menu. Oh yeah. Um, so what's what's next? What the, the next one's going to be the f- most interesting one here. Uh, next up, we have cold mac and cheese paired with Dale's pale ale. Okay. The why here is the crisp, bright citrus flavors will help cut through the fatty richness of the cheese sauce that make the mac and cheese so delicious. Now, mac and cheese is definitely a big hit at my home um admittedly i made mac and cheese for my kiddo for dinner last night in hopes of just having leftovers and then he ate the whole thing <laughs> so i had to make another batch oh okay so right. i have legitimately made cold mac and cheese for us you made us food i apologize for any like weirdness it is leftover i, I trust you i trust you with my life clearly it, it is paw patrol themed okay now you did and now it is white cheddar uh, no it's not it's i i'm it is not white cheddar. I just may have <laughs> added too much milk and butter. This is going to be interesting. That's why this is so fun. Okay. All, all right. right. We're going to go yeah, for yeah, it. Yeah, I'm going to grab go some. Oh, it's not bad. Cold. Tastes like macaroni. I will say nice job. This is good. Not bad. So the, I think what's missing here for us is when mac and cheese is warm, the richness is pumped up a yes. lot. And... Yep. With the with the hops and the pale ale, there isn't enough richness in cold mac and cheese to need to cut it with a with the hops and with the pale ale like this. Yeah, and admittedly, I don't know if cold means like leftover on the stove room temperature, right? Because this was in the fridge overnight, so <laughs> we could be on two different planes of cold here. But I exact I get exactly what you're saying. I was just thinking when I took a sip of the pale ale here that like Ugh. well it I it's good, but yeah. all I taste is the pale ale, right? And it's the richness that you would get from like the freshly mixed in cheese and powder and, and butter yeah, would yeah. have been better. It's not bad because I like Dale's pale ale. Yeah. Um, but overall, I think it would be a better combination if it were less cold overnight. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm trying to think of, of pairings that i've commonly done with pale ales uh, mustard is one that works really well with it like a spicy mustard you can find uh i think it's sierra nevada pale ale makes a, a mustard um that's pretty good i would get um firestone walker did a, DB, mm. a dba mustard that was delicious too yeah so I, that's kind of that's the typical flavor profile i'm i'm expecting to want to cut with such like crisp clean hops um 
This is this is an interesting one. I it says four bites of cold mac and cheese. It's specifically calling out how many bites you have left. And I mean, I don't need an excuse to have a Dale's Pale Ale. I, it's one of those like canned twelve ounce go tos that mm-hmm. that I always uh, will reach for if it's available. But they also recommend Upslope Citra Pale Ale, which is another one of those uh, Colorado uh, breweries. But Citra specifically, so it's kind of like that citrusy, piney, uh, bright hop flavor that they're looking to cut the, cut the uh, savoriness, the butter yep. and the cheese. And eh, okay, all right, I get it. I'll buy it. Okay, next up on the list of things that I pulled, I brought in some baby carrots, yeah. and these are going to be paired with Dogfish Head's ninety minute IPA. So on this one, the earthy and intensely sweet carrots are perfectly balanced by American Double IPAs, which are malty and extremely hop forward. So it's going to be a sweet cut with kind of a hoppiness yeah. sort of thing going on. I love carrots. These are intensely sweet. Admittedly, baby carrots are kind of a luxury to me. I just grab mm. the bulk carrots and chop them up into sticks. Mm-hmm. But I this I just uh, I, I took a sip and it actually worked pretty well. I feel like the sweetness knocks down the the sweetness of the carrot kind of knocks down the bite of the double IPA. I don't know if it's just me, but I get a lot of with both, I get a lot of like metallic taste. The baby carrots tend to have that that flavor for me a little bit. It's like pulling green beans straight out of the can if you get them that way. Okay, and maybe that's maybe that's my misinterpretation of like an earthy character to both of them. That's kind of what I was gonna say. The the kind of that minerally thing, M- minerally, yeah, mm-hmm. kind of kind of metallic mineral. They both have them in common. I think is is my my takeaway from it. Um, I I guess that means that they pair well. It's it's it balances it out. Yeah, but the sweetness for sure, like you said, plays off off one another. It's, it's good. I like it. All right, the last pairing we have here is a handful of Cheerios with some Black Butte Porter. Now I love Black Butte Porter. Uh, that's one of my favorites in the dark beer category. Um, but the reason they put it here is that nutty flavors deserve one another. So you got some Cheerios. They've got that like malty sort of nutty thing. These are not honey nut Cheerios, just regular Cheerios. I'm one of those where I'll get regular Cheerios and pour like 1% or non-fat milk over them and think that tastes good. Uh, I don't add sugar to my Cheerios. I don't do any of that. I, I love the, again, like almost metallic flavor of Cheerios. It's like not pleasant. But it's so good, <laughs> kind of malty, kind of uh, it very very cereal esque. Yeah. You know, when you say cereal, I, I think Cheerio. I think I found my new breakfast combo. All right, so what do you, I'm going to pour these into the cup? No, yeah. go for it. You do what you want to do. <laughs> is that a is that a bad choice? See, it's not a great breakfast. You can't sup, supplement uh, Deschutes Black Butte for milk. Right, that's a bad breakfast. I know there's breakfast porters. That's true. Breakfast stouts. Now, are so. those are those more uh, on the sweet side, or uh, more on the cerealac cere- side? <laughs> I I believe it falls more on that side of the kind of sweet. But I have I have seen joke videos where people will just pour pour beer right inside of the yeah, cereal. Yeah. It. I mean, if you want to give it a shot for science, go for it. But so, I think I think this it. The it, they definitely balance each other out completely, in my opinion. Like it's a thinness. 
it's it's what I still appreciate about having a bowl of Cheerios too is is how thin the milk is. It's not like this super sweet, creamy, um, at least you know one percent non fat milk is not super sweet, not creamy. No, you don't yeah. get any of those characteristics. It's it's very thin, and and this is thin, but like in a in a complimentary nutty kind of way. Exactly, roasty. Um, it's good. I don't know if I've ever had this beer. It's, it's strange to, for the context of my, the first time I've had some of these, to be like eating Cheerios. Cheerios. <laughs> like literal Cheerios, but it's good. And you're going to have a very strange association with this beer from mm-hmm, now on. Mm-hmm. That's fine. That's fine with me. You're welcome. Yeah, exactly. Unique experience. All right. So looking back on these four, we had the string cheese with the Pilsner. We had the cold mac and cheese with the pale ale, the baby carrots with the IPA, and the Cheerios with the porter. What do you think was your favorite combo here? Um, it's got to be the first, the string cheese and the Pilsner, um, <clears throat> mainly because the the milk fat in the cheese um, tends to coat your mouth in a way that needs a beer to refresh it, and... The Pilsner did a really good job of that. While my mouth does get coated still in like carrots and and mm-hmm. Cheerios and stuff, it's not to the level of like, oh man, I need I need the beer to be both a palate cleanser and sort of a, a complement to it. It's it's more abrasive in those instances because you don't have any fats to to be kind of cleansed out of your your taste buds and things like that. So. I, I'm more of a fan of the the string cheese. What about you? What do you what, which do you like the best? I'd have to agree with you. Uh, the pilsner and the string cheese seem to be the better combo to me, mostly because the pilsner it it kind of cut through the the bitterness cut through at the end of kind of clearing out the um, the savory sort of sweetness of the string cheese. Um, to say that string cheese is complex is also kind of I know right boggling a little bit. <laughs> it's it's hard to be like oh well. The this and the that of the string cheese. That's right. It's that's right. Freaking string cheese. Yeah. It's, but, <laughs> it, I I like that we're kind of having fun with this, and I like that the article kind of has fun with this. Oh they, yeah. They also took it to another level by asking someone who is professionally trained and someone who has a mind for what beers can I pair with these really common foods, and even like the very specific. Four bites of a cold mac and cheese is so strangely unique and specific that to try and find a beer that pairs with that, it, it takes a specific kind of person. It takes a certain kind of person to do that. Um, it, it's it's just a it's a cool article, I think. Definitely, a few more things that uh, they put into this that we did not get to is a a half eaten peanut butter and jelly pairs well with a multi brown ale. Okay, All right. um, we've also got a a handful of pirates booty. Pairs well with a, a rye IPA or some sort of a rye beer. If you know that, that's a like sort of like off popcorn puffy. It's like it's like if you cross popcorn with Cheeto puffs, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Really dusty with like a lot of a lot of saltiness and a lot of mm-hmm. yeah. I can I can see that working well. Uh, grilled cheese pairs well with an amber ale. Okay, I'm gonna have to try that one next time I make grilled cheese at home. Yeah, interesting. Uh, it, it, I have a lot of quirks about how I make my mac and cheese and my grilled cheese. My college I feel days, like you and cheese yeah. have a special relationship. 
<laughs> that is very true. Me, me and my college days, are, I have unique ways of making all of these, you know, just kind of dialing it to 11. Yeah. Well, it was it was definitely interesting, and I'm glad that we went through this. Yeah, uh, me too. Uh, be sure to go over and check out the article, see the rest of the pairings they have in there. There's some pretty fun stuff. And if you have a, a pairing that you like specifically with one of these, I'd, I'd be curious to know. Especially with, with what, cereal and, and goldfish crackers and string cheese. I feel like I just grab whatever's in the fridge. But now I'm, I'm going to think a little bit more about what I'm eating and what beer I'm pairing with it. And I think that's a good point of this. I mean, we, we're talking, you know, snobby pairings are out there and those are great. I'm not at all going to diss on pairing some sort of People really special thing. And like, it, yeah. I've had some, I've had some really good beer pairings. Um, I went to a Firestone Walker beer dinner at one point mm-hmm. and the things that they made were fantastic and went so well together, but taking it to like this most basic level definitely helps you garner a bit of an appreciation for how you can do it in your everyday life. Yeah. And this is also like kind of absurd, right? Which I love <laughs> yeah. I, t- taking any, anything that someone is super, super, super passionate about and bringing it to its, you know, biggest level of absurdity is is also my jam. Oh, yeah. If you've had any interesting pairings, please let us know. You can hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram by tagging us at Untapped. Now I've got a brand new segment for those of you interested in making your own beer. Our friend John Holzer from the Four Brewers podcast will join us every other week to share some great homebrew tips and tricks with us. Now here's John. Hey everyone, John here from Four Brewers, and I'm here with your weekly homebrew tip. And since this is the inaugural uh, segment of this segment, um, I thought I'd kick it off by talking about uh, basic brewing equipment if you're getting started. As a new home brewer, someone who's never brewed beer before, it's not that difficult. Uh, you don't really need to spend a whole lot of money, um, depending on what you want to do, depending on how you plan on brewing. If you want to use extract, it's really super cheap and really easy to get started. Um, but if you want to go all grain, it's also fairly cheap and easy to get started with that too. But today we're going to talk about using uh, malt extract um, just lightly. We're not going to get too deep into the weeds here and the equipment you would need. So uh, if you go to any good homebrew shop, like um, out here where I live, uh, there's a more beer. There are more, more beer, beer, and more beer. That's the name of the the place, uh, but they're morebeer.com. And there's a bunch of other uh, homebrew shops literally everywhere. Um, there's It seems like there's a new one opening every day, but morebeer.com. They sell, uh, I think their basic kit starts at around 60 bucks, 60 to $70, I think. Um, what you're getting with that, you're getting a couple buckets. You're getting one bucket to ferment uh, your wort in because basically beer is just sugar water that's fermented with yeast and uh, it creates ethanol alcohol. So you need a bucket to do that in and to keep that bucket clean and sanitary, they give you some uh, concentrated sanitary solution that you would basically mix in water to dilute and that kills any bacteria or living organism inside of your fermentation vessel, which in this case is the bucket. Um, you also get another bucket that has a hole in the bottom and you use that for bottling your home brew after you're done brewing it. You get some tubing, you get a thermometer, you get a hydrometer, which is used for measuring um, the gravity of your wort or your sugar water after you boil it. Uh, it get, tells you basically how dense it is with sugar. And some bottle caps, I think. The bottles are sold separately, but they're still pretty dirt cheap. Or you can just use old bottles from beers that you have consumed from 
craft breweries, you know, as long as they're not a screw top bottle, they're just a regular pop-off bottle. You can use those for your homebrew. So it's really not that expensive to get started. Go to your local homebrew shop, talk to the people that work there. They're usually very knowledgeable because it's what they do for a living. They sell homebrewing equipment. And while it is a little intimidating to go in there at first because you see all of this stainless steel and, you know, stacks of buckets and glass sparklets looking bottles, those are called carboys, by the way, just shelves and shelves of little bits and pieces and parts. Don't even have to go to a homebrew shop. You can just go to Home Depot and get a bucket. And as long as you've got like a stock pot and something to put your beer in that you can cover up, you know, to keep the air out and to let, you know, CO2 out of the vessel while it's fermenting, like an airlock, uh, you should be good to go, which you'd probably want to go to a homebrew shop to get an airlock. Or you could just take the bucket and lightly put the lid on top and let the CO2 work its way out that way. Uh, That's getting a little deep though. Anyway, uh, that's your homebrew tip of the week. And uh, if you want to hear more from me, you can check out my podcast at fourbrewers.com and we'll talk to you later. Be sure to catch John and the rest of the Four Brewers crew on the Four Brewers podcast, which can be found at fourbrewers.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to show off your love of Untapped? Check out our online store and pick up Untapped branded glassware, shirts, sweatshirts, hats, and more. Go to store.untapped.com and enter the coupon code PODCAST at checkout to get 20% off all orders. That's store.untapped.com coupon code PODCAST to get 20% off. Let's move on to our Style of the Week segment and take a look at this week's featured beer style. Here's Tim with more. This week we're going to be taking a look at the Saison style of beer. Saison, for those who don't know, is French for season, which this beer has a high relation to the seasons in which it is brewed, Hmm. uh, which we will get into. I don't think I have a season in which I enjoy a Saison specifically, but some of the flavors are, are kind of more akin to fall. Um, you get more like spice, you get more kind of, uh, funkiness, yeastiness, barniness, like the barnyard <laughs> flavor, if you would. Um, that would make sense with, uh, them also being called farmhouse ales. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a very specific, uh, tie into farms as well. Uh, so a Saison is basically a highly carbonated pale ale that is fruity, spicy, and often bottle conditioned. Um, historically they're brewed with low alcohol levels, but as with most beers that are being brewed now, uh, they are getting higher and higher. So the brewing of saisons happens in the cooler months. Um, at least it did until the discovery of refrigeration. The idea being there, it was, uh, if, if you brewed the beer during the summertime, it was more likely to spoil while it was fermenting due to the higher levels of airborne bacteria that come out. Right. So the idea was that this would be brewed in the cooler months and then stored for drinking in the summer months. Interesting. Okay, that's you know that's unique too to to beers like that because when I when I'm at let's say like a Whole Foods or a Total Wine or something like that, um, I'll see saisons not in the cold section, and I I don't know like I want to go and just put them in the cold section so I can drink a cold saison, but it's it sounds like that was typically how they were stored. It was meant to be stored at room temp so that it could be had then in the yeah and then you would cool it 
for drinking during the summer months right. to cool you off. Right. Um, it was, they, like it said, uh, they were lower ABV, so more of like a sessionable thing to enjoy during the, the warmer times. Right, kind of highly carbonated, something light, bright mm. uh, tasting. Yeah, that, that sounds, I mean, it sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. An interesting fact, though, is that Saison's didn't share enough identifiable characteristics to really be considered their own special style. Um, and they were rather considered as a group of summer ales that were made by farmers. Interesting. So more, I guess, they, they were just considered a pale ale at that point. A highly carbonated, fruity pale ale. Some along those lines. Like okay. a, a seasonal summer pale ale with spices. Um, it, usually the brewing in the cooler months was done by the permanent staff um, at the places that brewed it, at the farms that brewed it. Mm -hmm. um, and then, as we said, it was stored um, and then partaken on the farms by their seasonal workers. Um, and then every farm had its own distinct version, which I think is also very interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, I feel like that's a very French thing to do, right? They, the, the different varieties of grapes grown in different regions, uh, different cheese, going back to the cheeses, mm -hmm. different cheeses are, are produced in those different regions, typically named for the region that it's produced from. I, I would expect the French to be very specific with the localization of their beers. Definitely. I can see that. Um, they were meant to, as we said, be kind of a refreshing low ABV beverage, um, usually between, usually about 3% is where they stood. Um, but again, modern examples could be anywhere from 5 to 8%, um, packing more of a punch. I feel like I've had an Imperial Saison at one point as well. You know, like up on the, the higher echelon of, <laughs> of ABVs, uh, 7%, 8%, oh, wow. you know. Yeah. Something something real high. A good beer company in um, Orange County does uh, wild ales only. And Saison is, is typically one of those styles that they will make over and over and over again. Um, and barrel condition or, you know, add fruits to and things like that. It's uh, good beers, if I, if I can say so myself. <laughs> they do. They do yes. as well. Now, while definitely being more of a traditional farmhouse thing that was done um, very specifically to individual farms, uh, the Cezanne had a rise in interest um, after Cezanne DuPont was named the best beer in the world by Men's Journal in 2005. Interesting. Now, so this is like pre-kettle sour days. This is like pre-wild fermentation uh, revolution in craft beer. Saison DuPont named the best beer in the world in 2005? Yes. Wow. And Saison DuPont is one of those beers that has been around for forever. Right. I know that we we worked with uh, that brewery at one point, um, and I can very much picture their green and yellow checkered label. Yep. Admittedly, though, I can't say that I've had it, so mm. I can't, can't agree or disagree <laughs> with Men's Journal at this point, but that's definitely something to follow up on. Yeah, it, it always reminds me, the, the bottle always reminds me of um, like Grand Prix. Or yes, that's like, exactly like, the checkers. Yeah, totally. the checker. Oh, I completely get that. So the color of the Saison is determined by the malt that is used, as with, I think, most beers. Um, most of them are cloudy and have a golden color due to the popular pale and pilsner malts that are used to brew them. The spice character is usually given by a variety of spices used in the Saison. Um, some of those include orange zest, coriander, and ginger. Um, those are used to kind of give it that spicy character that you expect. 
And I've even had saisons that use pink peppercorns or okay. or uh, peppercorns in general. I mean that that imparts a very intense spiciness to a beer um, that pairs. I, I, I mean, it's an ingredient in a beer, but it, it pairs very, very well with the the style of of a saison. I think, and and I don't know. I, I haven't really had a saison that I haven't liked. They they do kind of on the spectrum of saisons. They can go from like barnyard funk, like you put a mouthful of hay in your mouth, <laughs> or they can go to the like light, uh, pale ale, very effervescent mm. uh, quality. So I, I don't know. I, I kind of appreciate that full spectrum of it because it's not a, it is not a flavor profile that you get from many other beers. That's true. And admittedly, there is a wide range of different versions out there so i should probably retract any commentary until i actually sit down get and you some, some try good some saisons. Yes. yeah yeah i've i'm sure i have one uh sitting at home right now i have a large collection of japanese inspired beers right now which i'd love to go through um wasabi and uh, umeboshi beers and shiso beers i have i have a shiso plant at home as well so i maybe we'll gotta we gotta get these together um and and do a, a little bit of a tasting but i know i have a saison in there somewhere i guess in theory we should have paired a saison while talking about saisons but <laughs> i just i couldn't wait any longer i've been holding on to the uh i've been holding on to the food pairing one for like two months now yeah yeah no it's good it's good All right, let's look at some of the interesting beer articles that we found this week. And this week by, I mean this week, this week. We're finally up to date a little bit. <laughs> yeah. This, I've actually, this article, this first article has been floating around for a little while, um, but finally getting into a show because I think it's super important. Um, this first article comes from craftbeer.com and it is Saltwater Brewery Creates Edible Six-Pack Rings. Now this is, I think, excellent and super important. As we all should know, plastic six-pack holders are pretty devastating to the environment. Yeah. I, I don't know about you, but every time I get one or I have see someone with one or I find one lying around or in the trash, I always have to cut it up, break all those rings apart. I just, it's like a, I feel obligated to do that. Well, and I feel like a lot of breweries have also moved to the uh, like snap plastic versions. For the four packs. The one, yeah, yeah, the four packs or even the six packs. I have one uh, uh, back at home that I got with a, uh, a six pack of Mexican lager from Alvar- Alvarado Street. Um, but you can recycle those. Yeah, those are also which reusable. Yeah. yeah. So I, I I do see more and more breweries moving to that, that model. But yeah, I, I feel the same way. Like I see things about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and the fact that there are just can holders there floating in the ocean just it it kills me you know so this uh, brewery from delray beach florida called saltwater brewery um they recently released an edible six-pack ring uh, which Which is is just a brand new approach at uh, sustainable beer packaging Um, the holder is 100 percent biodegradable and edible it is constructed uh, from barley and wheat ribbons from the brewing process. Really? So not only is it um, biodegradable and edible, but it is using material from the brewing process that would most likely just right. be thrown away anyway. Spent grains. Uh, that's incredible. Wow. I see what they what they have to do now is brew a beer and package it in those uh, six pack rings, but brewed with the six pack rings. 
I was going to say, well, I wonder what those six pack rings pair well with. That's what I'm saying. That's, <laughs> that's, that would be, that would be very good. That's, you know, this is, this is really good though. I mean, in, in all seriousness, it's good to see something like this happen. I, you know, I don't know what the potential impact is of either having biodegradable six pack rings versus reusable six pack rings versus ones that are generated from reusable plastic and then turned back into reusable plastic items. I don't know what has the greatest impact, but I, I, I do know that this probably gets less of those like thin plastic ones that you were talking about cutting up out of there mm. and, and not being used anymore. Very much so. The head brewer, Peter Aggerty, says that it is a very big investment for a small brewery um, that was created by fishermen and uh, surfers who have a love of the sea. Um, as I can imagine, I can only imagine like that's getting that science together and how you can make that would be pretty pricey. So yeah. it's not exactly the easiest thing for the small brewery to be investing in. Um, but the president, Chris Gove hopes that, uh, the idea here can be influential and start shifting other brewers into trying to find ways to not only, you know, reuse the materials from the brewing process, but also think more sustainably and, Think more about making biodegradable and recyclable products. Yeah. And I mean, <clears throat> you got to think too, the aluminum cans are already recyclable, glass bottles already recyclable, making the entire process of producing these uh, distributable <laughs> beer vessels, not only the carriers for them, but the the packaging for them, the... Uh, the way that it's transported, making sure that that is also kind of uh, more sustainable electric trucks. I mean, it's, get some it's, Tesla semis. It's, yeah, it's a lot of the the entire process sort of being retooled, uh, if you would, not to make another plastic pun. Um, over the course of the next couple of years, I'm I'm interested to see what happens. I, you know, also from this this brewery creating these specifically for their brewery, I, I could see them licensing them to bigger beer brands as well and being able to sell the process mm -hmm. or licensing the process to these other companies so that they do become more efficient. They don't have to figure it out for themselves. Make yes. it, make it so that uh, bud or whoever wants to come in here and do the same thing as, as this smaller brewery is, but at a scale that can actually have an impact on yes. the, the totality of beer. Definitely. would be great. That would be a good place to go. Our next article comes from travelandleisure.com and it is Iceland air just debuted a transatlantic beer. So Iceland air is known for getting creative when naming their planes, basically honoring glaciers, volcanoes, other natural wonders found in Iceland. So now they're getting creative with a brand new bespoke craft beer that they are going to be offering on their flights uh, in honor of their brand new plane, which is a Boeing 737 MAX. Uh, this new aircraft is basically going to be doing long transatlantic flights, and in honor of that, they are going to be serving 737 transatlantic IPA. An aircraft beer, if you would. Yes, exactly. Mm hmm uh, this new IPA is created by Boyne Brewhouse in Ireland, and it is made from European malts and hops from the Pacific Northwest. Um, the hops coming from the Pacific Northwest are more of an honor of where Boeing is up up there, where they manufacture their aircraft. Right. Right. Okay. All right. That's cool. It's a. The, I mean, honestly, very transatlantic. Exactly. So doing a lot of tie in there. Yeah. 
Jess Capadia from foodrepublic.com had a chance to sample the beer in flight, and he says the 737 Transatlantic IPA has extra fruity hops and a good strong color, a nice viscosity, and good head on it. So, this is only available on flights? Yes, um, and also in their lounge uh, ah. at their main airport in Iceland. Because we were talking, uh, I can't remember what episode it was, but about the beers, the different beers that are available on those different airlines. This is, I mean, this is unique to their airline, and they're having one brewed specifically for this new aircraft. That's, that's, that's such a cool thing. The new beer is not only tasty, but it will deliver a kick. Um, while most beers are less than 5%, the 737 Transatlantic IPA has an airline-requested ABV of, can you guess what it is? 7.37%. How'd they do that? Uh getting it really good yeah that's they're fudging the numbers right i mean i don't know (laughs) you can get pretty precise with that brewing process Oh, you totally can i've seen i've seen like 6.66 percent for you know the very clever halloween beers um this is cool they they do point out that this is a great beer to have if you're on a transatlantic flight because you're going to want to relax and kind of knock out for a little nap time seven percent's right there yep that's good that'll do it yep Our last article of the day comes from Forbes.com and is the world's first space beer could cost $1 million. Now we've talked about space beer before. Yes, and this article does harken back to some of that stuff. Um, We Mm -hmm. have Ninkasi with their beer brewed from yeast that was sent Sent into space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Came from a moon rock or something. (laughs) If it was was yeast from a moon rock, there would be life on other planets. That's a good point. Maybe I went a little too far there. Um, and then they also reference what we talked about in an earlier episode about Bridgeport That's sending right. their beer up into basically, quote unquote, space. Uh, this takes it quite a bit further. Uh, Four Pines Beer in Australia and Sabre Astronautics are currently working together to create the world's first space beer. In 2010, the founder of Four Pines, uh, Jaron Mitchell, and Dr. Jason Held from Sabre Astronautics met, and they kind of began discussing the idea of putting a beer in space. Uh, they, they just kind of thought it was a really great idea and kind of a no-brainer, so they just went for it. Uh, together, they named the beer the Vostok after the 1962 spacecraft manned by cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin, if anybody knows their uh, astronaut history there. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously getting a beer in space has many, many obstacles. And this isn't, we're not just talking, we're not just talking ingredients from space or sending a beer to space and returning to earth. We're talking beer that you can send up and drink in space. It's cosmonaut easy. I mean, it's, it really is, is not. Uh, oh, I, I missed this. I missed this. <laughs> you don't. Just no, no, honest, I did. You don't. I, <laughs> I missed, I missed you for all of that. Um, (laughs) there are many obstacles that you have to overcome when you're going to put a liquid into a zero gravity condition. Okay. Um, the first up is gases and liquids don't separate in space. So the bubbles would stick together and just form a big ball of gas surrounded by beer. Um, the second problem that you run into is basically when there's no gravity, uh, to pull blood to your feet, your head will naturally start to swell which results in muted senses in the tongue, which will reduce your ability to distinguish flavors. Got to get get that thousand IBU beer up in space. So somehow they basically have to come up with a way to reduce the carbonation uh, to make the drinker comfortable and then also strengthen the flavor. 
Interesting. Okay, so this isn't just sending a beer into space. This is also, at the same time, sending a person into space. This, this is formulating a beer for someone to drink while in a zero-gravity environment. Okay. I don't know if NASA will approve this, but maybe the Australian well, Space with Agency the pri- would. With the privatization <laughs> of space travel, this will be a thing eventually. In-flight beverages for your zero-gravity experience. While you're traveling to Mars. That's what Elon will go down the aisle. He'll bring you your... your uh, space beer. Space your Vols- beer. Your Volstock. That's right. I well, like this. This is great. <laughs> Another issue is getting beer out of the container and into your mouth. Normally, a straw or a squeeze pouch is used um, because surface tension will cause the beer to stick to the inside of the glass, and it's just, you're not going to get it out. You can't pour. Yeah, it's not going anywhere. So they basically, they ultimately designed an entire serving system uh, with different shaped um, tubes that will use fuel to direct a valve. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. You can read a little bit more about that in the article, but they they design an entire delivery mechanism for you. Um, it's it, they they even went up and they tested it in those zero gravity planes. There's some videos on this article about them doing that at at in seven minute intervals. Yes, exactly. While, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's pretty interesting. I'm I'm very intrigued by it because I mean I remember when it was like oh here's a pen that can write in space. Do you remember those the, the oh, space yeah. pens I, like you could I, write upside down. I've got one of those. Oh, of course you do. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, this isn't going to be something that's just going to be sitting around on shelves for you anytime soon. Uh, the team has spent more than $250,000 um, just in development in the first phases. And they're projecting that it could cost up to a million to actually like get it together and out there. And then tack onto that whatever the ticket price is to get into space, I guess. I do like the look of it, though. I mean, it does look spacey, yeah. right? The, the the vessel that you put the liquid in looks pretty spacey. It still looks like a bottle. I like that they, they tried to make it reminiscent of of a regular bottle on Earth. Um, I, I want to see this happen somehow. I would love also, maybe taking this to the next level, grow the ingredients for the beer, also in space, in like aeroponics, hydroponics, uh, either on the moon or or up in the International Space Station. I mean, really, really take this to the... All you need is enough beer to make like three bottles because it takes a million dollars to tool this thing. You're, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're not going to need that many hops and, this is, and, this and malts. Is, this is going to knock out uh, Utopia as the most expensive beer in the world, isn't it? It, it, it might. It absolutely might. It, you, if you include the ticket to space... And the training and (laughs) growing all of the ingredients in space. Yeah, yeah, this is going to be the most expensive beer ever. Now it's time to answer some of your questions about Untapped. If you've got any questions for us, send them over using the hashtag AskUntapped on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. This week's question comes to us from James on Twitter who asks, What's the difference between Nitro and Draft? That is a very good question because nitro pouring has been popping up more and more, I've noticed. There's at least one or two nitro taps available in most places I go. Not just with stouts or uh, dark beers, Guinness, but with also IPAs, things like that. I started noticing that, yeah, definitely. Uh, So nitro is a reference to the type of gas that is used in the carbonation process, basically uh, nitrogen oxide versus carbon dioxide, or N2 versus CO2. Um, Nitrogenized beer contains 70% nitrogen and 30% carbon dioxide. 
So that's where the main difference comes in. Now, what does this actually do to the beer? That is a good question. Uh, nitrogen tends to leave a thicker mouthfeel just because of the density of the bubbles. If you've ever poured a nitrogen beer, you'll notice that the bubbles are moving around and kind of have this like a cascading, like moving effect going on to it where it's kind of like moving around Undulating. in there. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so that effect is caused by the use of a restrictor plate in the pouring process, which forces the beer through a bunch of tiny holes before it lands in the glass. Interesting. It is. I did not know that part of it. <laughs> I, I, I knew about the gas usage and the carbonation, but I right. didn't realize about the pouring. Now, the bubbles on the outside of the glass are going to basically appear to be falling like your standard beer, but in the center, they're actually rising, creating that kind of cascading rolling effect. Um, nitrogen beers tend to have like a kind of a thicker, creamier head on them, if you've noticed that before. Um, and like you said, these are, we're usually kind of held off for more of the darker beers, but breweries have really been kind of expanding out upon that and creating different nitrogen infused beers. Yeah. I mean, I've even, I've honestly seen nitrogen, co like nitrogen infused coffee in cans. And I think we've also talked about pouring nitrogen infused beers out of cans before and how you kind of have to be rather vigorous to make sure that the nitrogen that's in solution that's actually dissolved into the beer when it's put through the canning process comes out of that beer and does end up kind of producing like you said that that sort of cascading effect in yeah. the beer i think one of the more popular or at least more well-known um, versions of this is the uh, nitro milk stout from left hand and their whole uh, pour hard motto right basically you open it up and you just flip it over and just let it go, um, and it kind of creates that sort of invigoration <laughs> it, of the nitrogen bubbles in there. It breaks your conceptions of of how you should pour a beer yes. and whether or not pouring that quickly will overflow your glass. <laughs> I think that, that scared me a little I had bit. had that concern a couple times for sure. Yeah. But I did read a bit about how that how breweries are trying to kind of take this nitrogen-infused way of carbonating um, to different styles. Um, I've definitely seen infused um, IPAs, pale ales, and it definitely, it gives it, it gives it a very different feel. So you should, I would recommend stacking up um, one versus the other because you will notice a big difference. It's smoother. It just, it has that side of thicker, creamy mouthfeel to it. The nitrogen version will like give it that. Show notes are available at podcast.untaps.com. If you've got any questions for us or you've got feedback for us, either about the app or the podcast, connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's at untapped on all those platforms. And if you could please take a moment to head over to Apple Podcasts and either rate or write a review about our show, we would definitely appreciate it. We'd love to hear your feedback and see what you're saying. And those ratings definitely help others find our show on Apple Podcasts. Until next time. Cheers. Cheers.